Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. What's your ethnicity? Uh, why is that relevant? No, no, because I'm asking you a question. My ancestors are from Ireland and Italy. My, my own ethnicity is not relevant to the question I'm asking. No, no, it is, because you're asking about, he said, originally. I understand when I listened to their press conference yesterday, they talked more about impeachment than anything else. These comments from the White House are disgraceful and disgusting, and these comments are racist. Yeah. Yeah, the Democratic congresswomen should leave if they're not happy. Where should they go? It's up to them. Go wherever they want, or they can stay. But they should love our country. They shouldn't hate our country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So George Conway, that Republican geezer married to Kellyanne, is a fun voice on Twitter. But the idea that his editorial today, Trump is a racist president, closes the book on Trump's bigotry and character, suggests that the voices of black witnesses to his racism and black victims to say nothing of the overwhelming evidence of Trump's discriminatory practices collected by the Justice Department decades ago, simply carry no weight. It takes a white geezer to say he's a racist. 46 years ago, to remind you, Maxine Brown, then a 33-year-old nurse in Queens, applied for an apartment in one of the Trump family's buildings in Jamaica Estates. She was ready to rent the apartment, sight unseen. The rental agent said she put in a perfect application, but Fred and Donald Trump took the application from the rental agent and stuffed it into a drawer because Maxine Brown was black. The Trump company's practice of turning away potential black tenants was then painstakingly documented by activists and organizations who were trying to promote housing equality. The Justice Department in 1973 then sued Trump management for discrimination against blacks. Donald, in his usual defensive rage, countersued the Justice Department, sound familiar, for defamation and smeared all black people as welfare recipients that he was being forced to interact with. Now, let's remind ourselves Maxine Brown was a self-made nurse putting in long hours and regularly paying rent while Donald Trump was a spoiled heir already in line for corporate welfare and hoping to score $100 million from the Justice Department for pointing out what was patently obvious. He was a racist 46 years ago, then and now. And a racist, not just for his deafening dog whistles, where he expresses white supremacy at just the perfect pitch to recruit neo-Nazis, the ones who adore him, but for actual discrimination and at times even would-be exterminationist actions and racism. And after Maxine Brown, the DOJ's endless documentation, and for Christ's sakes, the voices of innocent young boys of color whom Trump wanted executed for a crime they didn't commit— it should not take George Conway or anyone else to say he's a racist. My guest today on slightly less incendiary matters is Garrett Graff, who wrote a biography of Robert Mueller before 
He was special counsel. Garrett is a director at the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program, a colleague of mine at Wired, and a contributor to CNN. He's going to help me understand where the Mueller report stands now, what its consequences have been so far, and what we might expect from Mueller's delayed testimony next week. Garrett, welcome back to Trumpcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So we haven't even spoken, believe it or not, since the Mueller report dropped. Can we say dropped? That seems like it should happen for a Beyonce album since it was published, since we got a copy of it. So I haven't revisited with you your first response to the report. Many of us have tried to summarize it either in print or just for ourselves. And I wonder if you're having the same experience, if it's sort of changing as you remember parts of it or something comes to the surface like Flynn or a moment with Roger Stone and you suddenly think, that's where the report has its focus. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me either sort of what you first thought and what you now think about the report. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us, I mean, me included, were really surprised at how damning the report actually turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's important to not lose sight of that incredibly basic fact, mm-hmm. which is, you know, literally that morning, I had half of a column written, pre-written about, you know, Democrats aren't going to move forward with impeachment. Nancy Pelosi has made very clear that this, you know, that as she said, you know, and I think it was in February, he's not worth it. Hmm. Um, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then, and we were all operating off of the Bill Barr letter at that point. Mm -hmm. Then you start reading the report and you discover, you know, just how wrong Bill Barr's letter actually was. And that the report in many ways is as close to an impeachment referral as a special counsel could actually provide. I feel like the passage that really looks explicitly like an impeachment referral, I don't have the words right at hand, but, you know, that was the thing that some people zeroed on in the very beginning, that who is he handing this off to, you know, was, I think, one of the significant consequences or readings of the report. Yeah, I think that's one of the areas where the special counsel regulations make this complicated, is Mm. that... uh, as opposed to the old independent counsel regulations, which is what Ken Starr operated under, mm-hmm. you know, he really could make uh, more or less a direct impeachment referral to Congress. Yeah. Whereas Mueller's report as special counsel only goes to the attorney general. Yes. Um, and then, you know, he doesn't have a path to directly say something to Congress. Yeah. And so we have been uh, sort of the whole country has been stuck in this logic problem mm-hmm. that he has left us with, um, where he says, quote, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, mm-hmm. we would so state. Yes. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards. However, we are unable to reach that judgment. The evidence we've obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult questions that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Mm -hmm. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it does not exonerate Mm -hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And this logic problem, uh, uh, sort of the whole country has seemed stumped by, mm-hmm. um, of, I would write in this report if I thought the president was exonerated. 
I do not write in this report that the president ex- is exonerated mm-hmm. or go. And then sort of the whole country is like, oh, man, this one's real tough. I don't know how to finish this sentence. I didn't want to step on you saying you wrote the first half of a column in advance of the release of the report. Tell us what the second half was or what happened. Yes. What I ended up doing was I I, I didn't use any of that material Yeah. um, because, you know, I started reading the report. It seemed actually pretty clear that impeachment was a possibility coming out of reading this report. Mm -hmm. This is a case where actually Robert Mueller has found substantial damning evidence. And I think one of the things that is important to level set for the American people next week is what Robert Mueller did find. So what did he find? He found through a two-year investigation that there were two separate criminal conspiracies that benefited Donald Trump's presidential campaign and election. One was a conspiracy that Donald Trump himself participated in, involving covering up damaging stories with campaign finance violations orchestrated by his lawyer, Michael Cohen. Uh Um, Donald Trump is named as an unindicted co-conspirator in that criminal conspiracy. The second is was a criminal conspiracy conducted by the Russian government Mm -hmm. that sought through a variety of information influence operations Mm -hmm. to support Donald Trump and undermine his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of those conspiracies involved federal felonies. Um, Both of them were uh, had a shared goal of undermining the American democratic practice of free, open, and transparent elections. Mm -hmm. And that's really problematic. And Mm -hmm. that's not something that we should look past. And that's not something that we should sort of just write off Mm -hmm. as, oh, well, you know, this was a weird election. Donald Trump actively, according to the Mueller report, appears to have actively obstructed justice into the second conspiracy by the Russian government as well. I perpetually, probably tediously oversight CITE, Adam Schiff's it's not okay speech. You know, this is the one where he goes through the facts in the report and then sort of challenges Republicans or Trump supporters to, since the facts are no longer in dispute, I haven't heard one person, not Lindsey Graham, not Donald Trump himself, quarrel with the facts in the report, which is amazing. Right. So the facts in the report are laid out. So now the question is simply just it, everyone listening at home, is it okay? And right. Schiff, because no one will argue with Schiff because they just keep demurring or distracting, says he even gives the argument for the other side. You said it was a weird election. His argument for why it might be okay to someone is that this might be, all the facts in the report, what one needs to do to win. Welcome support from Russians, and then in order to get your agenda passed, block an investigation that seems to be distracting from the presidential political agenda, legislative agenda. I haven't heard anyone make that argument, except Adam Schiff, when he gives it as a straw man. And, you know, when you say people overlook the report, it's not either because they think it's okay, 
Or, I mean, apparently, since no one, not even his strongest supporter, not Sean Hannity, not anyone, has said politics is a rough game. The FARA, you know, registering as a foreign agent or talking to the Russians, we interfere in other people's elections. The Russian interferes in our elections. Anyone would have taken the dirt on Hillary Clinton. So that's fine. And then, of course, he had to try to block the investigation because those investigations are how you mess up a president. And this was political and it was a witch hunt. Nobody has said that nor have they quarreled with the facts, which is the thing that drives me crazy. It just seems as though Barr created a cloud of confusion around what was in the report. People didn't read the report. Trump said it exonerated him. And the American people are trying hard to forget about it or have forgotten. Let me throw up one of the other straw men that you hear in this is that, you know, well, it doesn't matter whether the president tried to obstruct justice because there was no underlying crime. Mm -hmm. And let me deflate that in two ways. The first being, actually, it doesn't matter under federal jurisprudence and the criminal code whether there's an underlying crime. Attempting to obstruct justice is just as bad as actually obstructing justice. And there are all sorts of people who do end up getting prosecuted for obstructing justice into investigations that don't end up charging underlying crime. Okay. The second, though, is there were underlying crimes. Mm -hmm. There was this whole other criminal conspiracy that did personally involve Donald Trump, the Mm -hmm. campaign finance violations with Michael Cohen. And one of the sort of most obvious reasons to me, of why the president might have been trying to obstruct the Russia investigation was he knew that there were other crimes that he had been implicated in, that he had committed, and was trying to sort of shut down the whole area uh, of inquiry to ensure that those crimes remained secret as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Moreover, and I think that this is one of the things that people really do overlook in the report, Robert Mueller in two sort of key places, says effectively, we didn't get to the bottom of whether there was a criminal conspiracy between Russia and the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. And he says that very explicitly in one place where he effectively says, we faced so much obstruction with witnesses refusing to testify, with witnesses beyond our reach, witnesses deleting documents that we might have concluded otherwise if we had actually had the opportunity to investigate all mm-hmm. of this. Right. This In the second place, he makes very explicit that he never got to the bottom of the question of why Paul Manafort was giving polling data to Konstantin Kalimnik. He literally says in the document, we do not understand why this act occurred. Hmm. Although he makes clear that it both happened and that it was ongoing. It wasn't just a one-time event, that there was some ongoing sharing. And what we know from the court documents and the court discussion around this is that this was particularly troubling to the judge overseeing the Manafort case, where the judge really raised the point that what Paul Manafort was sharing was not basically like an email link to the real clear politics rolling average, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but actual cross tabs, you know, the detailed polling data that would only be useful to someone with a sophisticated knowledge of American politics and polling. 
this in some ways is the most obvious place where information could have moved from the Trump campaign to the Russian government or the Internet Research Agency mm -hmm. to help them with their targeting of, for instance, voters in Michigan and Wisconsin. This is an instance where Mueller just throws his hands up and says, you know, we tried really hard to figure this out and can't figure it out. Let's be quite clear that there are some big mysteries left that could fundamentally alter our understanding of the behavior of Donald Trump and his campaign in 2016. Do you agree with Ross Garber, everyone's favorite impeachment defense lawyer, or some others that Mueller will say nothing more than what he said in his remarks, namely, read the report, it's all in the report, how about I refer you to the report, and not elaborate in his testimony? I think that that is highly likely. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of the things that you should not forget and that Democrats in Congress should not forget is simply getting Robert Mueller to read his own words out loud. Yes. Yeah. Has tremendous value. Yes. That in some ways, Democrats have been told precisely how to orchestrate Robert Mueller's testimony mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. where Robert Mueller has said, I have 448 pages of testimony. Please choose which parts of these you would like me to read out loud. Mm -hmm. That alone would have a tremendous impact on the American people. I mean, we saw even just how Mueller's like 500 word press conference. Yes fundamentally altered the, the trajectory of this story because it was the first time that a lot of people were like, oh, wow, yeah. this sounds really bad, actually. Yeah, at Justin Amash's town hall when he, you know, made the case for impeachment in Michigan. Yeah, there were a couple of red hats even who said, huh, we thought the report exonerated him and it didn't. I mean, I'd go a little further to say also when the report was written, Mueller didn't know what Barr was going to make of it. And he didn't know what Nancy Pelosi was going to make of it. And he has had now months to mull over how it's been misread by Barr, misread then by Republicans, and not acted on by Nancy Pelosi. And I know that he's very level-headed, but that must frustrate the hell out of him. And even hearing some of that emotion in his voice, and I thought we got a little in the press conference, some of the sternness, some of the clarity that gets lost in the details in the report. I think that could also be very powerful. There was a great Brian Williams segment that he did on uh, his show on MSNBC uh, uh, over the winter, where he actually pulled together a lot of Robert Mueller talking in his rare public remarks over the years, mm -hmm. but, uh, because uh, Brian Williams' joke was, if you just watched TV, you would think that Robert Mueller woke up every morning and then spent the entire day walking up and down empty congressional hallways. Because uh, for two years, we've never seen this guy speak, and we've just watched this B-roll of him sort of walking up and down hallways. Yeah, that's right. A one-time meeting with, like, an Apple computer consultant or something, uh, exactly. and everyone parsed that. One of the things that this is a chance for the American people to see is how serious and thoughtful Robert Mueller actually is. Mm -hmm. That this is not a 
partisan crazy man. This is not an angry Democrat. This is not Ken Starr. Mm -hmm. And also, P.S., this is not Jim Comey. That's a very good point. This is not someone who wakes up every day and wants to lead the Robert Mueller show Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, mix it up on Twitter. Um, And and I think that uh, the chance for America to just see Robert Mueller be a serious, thoughtful person um, can carry a lot of weight in underscoring the seriousness of his investigation. I think that's right. Now, I'm going to ask you a sort of a delicate question, and I hope you'll I hope you'll give it some serious thought, because right now many of us are on tilt thinking either pro impeachment or pro Pelosi's measured response. I know I had a huge stake in the Mueller report closing the book on this issue. I even hoped that he would petition the AG, whoever it was, to waive the regulations in this very specific case where the president couldn't be held above the law. That's what I hoped for. There's been a lot of people say disappointment around the report. So I want to take to you the argument of Jed Sugarman and others that Mueller dropped the ball, that Mueller's equivocation in the report or that Mueller's ambiguity in the report amounts to equivocation and a certain kind of passivity, a gentlemanliness that this particular investigation did not call for and in fact did it a disservice. And I actually think that there is a very interesting question along those lines in this, whether all of the reasons that made Mueller the right person to be respected by Washington to do this Mm -hmm. in a fair and nonpartisan way might have also meant that at the end of the day, Mueller was too fair. And you could imagine, for instance, another special prosecutor like, say, Pat Fitzgerald, who did the Scooter Libby Leak investigation to look at this same set of evidence and and have the same conclusion that Mueller came to, which is there are some really challenging questions here about, you know, facts and law and legal interpretations. But ultimately, those are questions for the courts to sort out, not me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go ahead and indict all Mm y'all, and then, you know, let the courts sort this out. Did you actually, and I maybe didn't follow your run-up as closely as I might have, did you entertain the sort of differential diagnosis that the report might ask for an indictment? In addition to thinking, you know, now that Nancy Pelosi won't impeach, this probably won't generate an impeachment or lead to an impeachment, did you also take the more aggressive Consider the most more aggressive option that, again, he might petition the AG for uh, a waiver on the regulations and go ahead and indict. Uh, given that what we knew about the OLC opinions, I'm not sure I ever felt that Mueller as a lifelong DOJ institutionalist would sort of go out of his way to circumvent standing DOJ policy. Mm-hmm. I do think Potentially that there were sort of and this is part of Jed Sugarman's um, argument that there were a lot more indictable crimes by other members of the president's Mm. campaign and inner circle um, on the sort of campaign finance campaign collusion side Mm -hmm. that maybe a lot of other prosecutors would have brought charges on. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, and that that's you know that Mueller when you the the thing that's consistent when you look across the uh, the different criminal charges that Mueller brought is um, he he really only brought the most black and white criminal charges. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's almost no gray in his, in his criminal indictments. And yeah. the, the evidence is overwhelming and compelling and mostly involves guilty pleas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sort of the evidence was so overwhelming that the person just pled guilty, you know, right out of the gate. I don't know if you looked at Michael Wolf's book. We've had him on the show. And, you know, there's certain journalists in this equation who miss facts and he may have made some mistakes. But I also think that, you know, he had terrific access, especially to Steve Bannon. But he also had a good sense of the mood he conveyed in his book. We should parenthetically say that Mueller and Peter Carr in that office has taken issue with at least one of the things that Wolf says in that book, but Mm -hmm. that the investigation always felt like it was on the brink of being shut down. Some of them were playing defense all the time and working, you know, as fast as possible before, you know, their budget dried up. And, you know, it's one of those things where when history moves one direction, you forget that people were operating under the assumption it would move the other direction. You know, this is like when, you know, everyone was so convinced Hillary would win that they did X, Y, Z in that summer and fall of 2016. Well, I just hadn't realized how much the investigation felt like it was under the gun. Yeah, that's one of the stories that we really don't yet know Mm -hmm. is what it was like to be in that. Yeah. It's easy to forget now, as it sort of always is with history when it sort of seems deterministic, that like we know that Mueller, we know now that Mueller made it all the way through the end of his investigation. We know that it took two years, you know, sort of. All of that sort of seems reasonable and normal along the way. But A, that was not a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of times where it seemed that Mueller's investigation was quite tenuous. I mean, Mm -hmm. remember the number of days where it sort of seemed like Rod Rosenstein was actually going to get fired or resign Mm -hmm. and, you know, cast sort of the whole investigation in the Justice Department into chaos. At the same time, Here were a bunch of guys at the special counsel's office um, who were investigating how the president was trying to shut them down themselves. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, that must really sort of screw up your own sort of thinking in this to be uncovering the evidence of, you know, Don McGahn being told to shut down the investigation one of the super crazy stories in here that, you know, we sort of overlook because it's like the 17th sketchiest thing that takes place yeah. is the incident where the president told his former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, to sort of shut down the investigation, mm-hmm. like call Jeff Sessions and tell him to shut this thing down. Right. As if a pretty inexperienced party hack could just do it for him. Yeah, it's amazing. There's something else in Michael Wolff's book, a quote from Bannon that stands out. Since you've written about Mueller as a Marine, I bet you'll have something to say about this. Bannon says, never send a Marine to do a hitman's job. 
Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. But, it, yeah. I mean, that could be unpacked. Damn that Bannon. He does say these, like, epigrammatic things that get in my head for all his, you know, how we know ideologically he's corrupt. Anyway, what do you think of that? I think it's possible that that's true. There's sort of a more subtle interpretation, which is a Justice Department institutionalist is never going to, as his final act in a 40-year career there, gamble away the Justice Department's reputation. Mm -hmm. Someone who has lived by the nonpartisan, apolitical nature of the Justice Department is not going to take a decidedly, pointedly political approach to his final act. Yes. I mean, the thing is, though, when you say institutionalist, that seems like a certain fidelity to the law itself. And one thing that um, I've heard from people kind of close to the investigation is that Mueller was truer to the Department of Justice or felt his loyalty was to the Department of Justice and not to justice itself. Yes. And I keep thinking that we'll look back on this time and think we stood on ceremony in so many instances. And I don't mean we have to join the Kremlin annex and throw bricks at the White House. I just mean when the president is acting above the law, that there should be certain mechanisms for removal that are quite civilized, that don't aren't a riot, and that are true to what the framers and the founders wanted. You know, Ben Franklin thought that impeachment was this highly civilized and refined alternative to execution, to assassination. You know, he was thought barbarians uh, assassinate presidents, and Americans have done that before. Um, but um, this very civilized, refined adversarial system would merely remove them from office or, or take an, a sitting president, turn him into an unseated president so that then he could be tried. And these are, are not, we're not talking about radical action in impeaching or even indicting, bringing charges. That's what the, those are the mechanisms of the law that we understand. And we got to a point where it is considered so aggressive and ungentlemanly to bring charges against a sitting president. That doesn't mean instantly removing him. It doesn't mean throwing him in jail, you know, or going straight to a sentencing or, you know, bypassing a, a, a trial or bypassing the adversarial system. But that's the action. That's the act that the framers intended. I don't think that in the first 100 plus years of this country, there would be any question that this president is unfit for office. Am I wrong? I concur with that, with with a sort of following addendum, which yeah. is you see Democrats sort of say the elections next year, let's settle this at the ballot box, blah, 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 blah. And I think that that belies the constitutional principle at stake here, yeah. which is we should not tolerate as a democracy this kind of behavior in the commander in chief. And yeah. that under the checks and balances of our system, it is up to Congress to act to remove someone who is not fulfilling the duties and responsibilities and the oath of office mm -hmm. of the president of the United States. I notice, you know, there are more than whisperings that the SDNY is unlikely to charge the Trump organization 
um, or their officials in this hush money investigation that lots of people, including Steve Bannon, expected to generate all kinds of indictments. Are people afraid? Is there an element of fear still that Trump, you know, either as president or as kind of de facto commander of a red hat militia or as someone who has tentacles is seemingly everywhere that that we have to treat him with kid gloves somehow. I, I don't think that that's it. Okay. Uh, simply because, like, actually we have seen quite the opposite. The Justice Department has launched all manner of investigations in all sorts of directions to examine potential criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. You have very good sources in this, and, you know, you, you were saying from day one that the Mueller report was going to turn out to be worse than the Barr report mm-hmm. made it out to be. But it might be early to prejudge how some of these investigations will play out, mm-hmm. in part because, like, the evidence that I would cite is the Trump Foundation has been forced to have shut down while he's been in office through some New York state process. There is evidence that these investigations will uh, can conclude with a bang and Mm -hmm. not with a whimper. You mentioned my sources. You have sources, too. Had you heard or been told the same thing I was, which is that there was some kind of showdown between Trump and Barr? We know Mueller didn't show up at the Barr presser, and it's just widely alleged. Now, really, this is just rumors, but that Barr and and Mueller have completely fallen out, having been friends, because the light version of this is that Barr misrepresented the report. The heavier version is that Barr stormed in and said, no new indictments, shut down the investigation, and they had to wrap up quickly. Yeah, and I think we, uh, I, I think there's just too much speculation there to yeah. really try to understand and unpack all that transpired. Yeah, I um, agree. But there was there was something just in the, you know, citizen end of this that did feel very rushed. And there's torque there. Like yeah. Mueller not there, showing there up is with Barr, right? Well, except I don't think that there is. I actually disagree that Mueller not showing up mm. means anything at all. Ah, okay. Because, um, you know, Mueller didn't want to show up. You know, this was never about Mueller. Mueller has made clear in his previous press conferences that were announced by Rod Rosenstein, not by him, mm-hmm. that, you know, he was not in this for the press conference. And look at how long it took Mueller to just come out and give his own remarks and look at how abbreviated they were when he did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is, you know, the, Mueller has had every opportunity he could to speak as publicly as he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to take at face value the fact that Mueller has chosen not to speak more publicly than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually doesn't make any... it. Uh, the, I found nothing surprising about Mueller not standing there at the podium for the announcement of his own uh, report. He does tend to skip the stagecraft. One last thing. What do you hope to see at his testimony? I really just hope that the Democrats in Congress make him read start to finish the executive summaries of volume one and volume two. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that that is as powerful as any moment that they could get out of the report and something that every American should listen to. 
that's highly likely to contain, you know, 85 percent of the total value of having Mueller testify. Democrats, if you're listening, I hope you don't showboat and instead do what Garrett just said. My guest has been Garrett Graff. He is a director at the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program, writes for Wired and contributes to CNN. Thank you, Garrett. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So that's our show for today. What'd you think? We want to know. I'm at page 88 on Twitter. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there? Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. You know you want to. And become a Slate Plus member. Today's Plus Day. It's our answer to Prime Day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That's popcorn dust a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.